You may not always step into what you had thought was the ideal next role, but why limit yourself? Why not spend some time and effort in discovering more about yourself and what would make sense? The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Bulwark's Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm sitting here this afternoon at the Capital Girls City Center with my guest, John Light, with Evolving Talent. I don't have it in front of me. Group. Group. That's Evolving it. Talent Group. How are you doing this afternoon? Doing great, Paige. Glad to be here with you. I'm glad you you made it. <laughs> Survive St. Patrick's Day. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Before getting into it, I wanted to ask everyone to leave a review and help support the show. It only takes a few moments and you'll get a shout out. But let me read this week's review. Let's see. We've got a five star in iTunes by hashtag quality matters from the United States. Love the podcast and all everyone with OGGN does. Keep it up. Thanks. Quality matters. All right. So, John, let's talk about how you got started in the oil and gas industry. Oh, certainly. You got to dial the way back machine way back. <laughs> I actually uh, was here in Houston as a kid growing up in the Houston area with my dad and went through the oil glut. Okay. And the collapse in the 80s. So I remember going out in the yard where they built rigs, where they put them together. Oh, and that's cool. It was really cool. I could never get permission to go to the crown of the derrick to the top. Right. But I got everything else. That's cool. And going down the emergency slide when you were a little kid, it's fantastic. I'm sure it's terrifying as an adult if you have a reason to do it. Right. You know, but you can't really avoid anything up and down the hydrocarbon chain. In Texas. Yeah, that's very uh, true. You know, growing up here over the years, going to school, going into the accounting world before I kind of evolved, transitioned to the, uh, to the recruitment space, everything's been oil and gas centric. And it doesn't really matter if you're looking at it from, hey, I'm in the healthcare industry or I'm in a tech industry or I'm in some form of manufacturing consumables or, or whatever. Somehow in this part of the world, it all comes back to oil and gas. Right. Exactly. All right. So you, you kind of have experience across the the industry, but it's a little different than most people I've interviewed before. Yeah, I'm not a technical guy, not an engineer by, by background. By background in trade, I'm an accountant. You know, spent time at British Gas, for example, when I got out of college. Uh-huh. Where'd you go um, to school? A&M. I won't hold that against you. You know what? I try, <laughs> I try my best to not have confirmation bias. You know, when I like people, I think, well, that person's probably an Aggie and I just need to ask them. But... <laughs> No, I tell that to everybody that comes on that went to a and I'm just giving you all crap. But well, it doesn't matter, you know, from the perspective, from my perspective anyway, because it's a great school. Right, it is. And, you know, I've watched schools around Texas evolve and become stronger and stronger, whether it's the that little small school in Austin. I forget the name. Um, <laughs> or, Fair enough. Or, or any of the others that are out there. You know, at the end of the day, Texas is a great place for education. Yes, it is. Very uh, especially much so. at upper level. Excellent schools, excellent B schools, mm -hmm. uh, excellent engineering. Hard to beat. I mean, I don't know how many states in this part of the country have the level of education available that we do in Texas. It's fantastic, really. So whether it's A&M or UT or U of H or Rice, Baylor, you know, mm -hmm. the list goes on and on. They're, they're outstanding institutions. 
I'm just a little prejudiced because maroon's a really fantastic color. <laughs> well, I'm a redhead, so I like orange. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, let's let's talk about where you started in oil and gas specifically as an accountant. Yeah, I started as an accountant at British Gas back in the mid-90s. I actually wasn't in the commodities portion of the business, okay. but in what later became called Pipeline Integrity International. We ran pigs doing inspections. And for people that don't know what PIG is, can you explain It's that? a pipeline inspection vehicle. Uh, okay. Basically, it's like a giant plug. You put pressure behind it, send it down a pipeline to clean. In our case, we were doing basically using magnetic resonance technology to find pitting and cracking and so on and so forth, which is a big part of really keeping the whole transportation part of the business in business, right? Right. We don't need one of those bad boys busting out and popping loose. Right. Um, you know, a transition from there actually went to waste management for a while. I got exposure to some different stuff. But eventually, after spending some time in public accounting, I ended up accidentally in the recruitment business. How do you accidentally fall into the recruitment business? 80 or 90% of the people I talk to in the business end up in it just by circumstance or accident. You know, in my case, I'm talking to someone and they looked at me and said, well, why are you an accountant? And I paused just like I'm pausing now yeah. and I'm, because I was thinking in my head, I was like, man, that's a really good question. And why did I ask myself that question? You know, right. why didn't I put my finger on it? Not because of too much personality, too little or anything like that. But I think that everybody has within them kind of a core personality that's set early on. Mm-hmm. And then we have outside of that something of a, a facade we put up. You know, what our boss expects us to be, what our spouse expects us to be, our friends and so on and so forth. And there's a gap between that and what we really are. Right. And that's kind of a buffer of of energy. And when you get stressed or you're doing things you don't like to do that are unnatural, that energy wears down and you always revert to your core personality. Well, I came to the conclusion that my core personality wasn't an accountant. Uh, I did great in roles where I could do more than a P&L balance sheet cash flows, you know, where I could get engaged in other aspects of the business. And that kind of fueled the direction I went into to get into the recruitment space, because there you get engaged in a lot of different things, a lot of different ways at a very different pace. There's no monthly cycle in terms of financial reporting and your close and your variance analysis and then start all over. Rather, you know, you're solving problems, hard problems, not just for your clients, but for your candidates. And you know, what I found out over the years after having transitioned from kind of that contingent recruiter mentality and doing, you know, direct hire, real fast stuff. If you don't place people, you don't get paid to doing contractors and kind of a blend of those things where you put somebody out for three months or six months or whatever, all the way up to the executive retained search side of equation, which is quite different. It's more of a of a consulting mindset. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really learning what does someone want from a client side, detailing that, making an image, a picture, a profile, and then going and finding not just that profile, but then also the pieces of it that are going to align with that company's. And the word is overused when we say culture. Yeah. I define it a little bit differently. It's probably due to that uh, really first class B school uh, background. <laughs> I just define culture loosely as how we go about our business. And if you can get a candidate whose core persona, where instead of spending energy holding a facade up, they're spending energy being more of what they are, what they do real well. Mm-hmm. If you can find that, that how they go about their business and align it with how the organization goes about their business, 
the odds, the probability, if you will, of that being a successful placement for next step for that candidate and for that client go through the roof. Because now people are spending energy on being more of what they are instead of trying to be something they're not. Yeah. You know, an organization can't change how they go about their business overnight. If it's a fire drill every day, odds are tomorrow it's going to be a fire drill. Yeah. Now you can change that over time, and that usually entails bringing new people in, new leadership, new processes, so on and so forth, a lot of discipline. And you can even change a candidate over time if they're very disciplined about it. But it takes a lot of energy, and then you're spending your energy changing instead of doing what you do well. And that's, I think, a core reason why businesses that get away from their core mission mm-hmm. and try to be a lot more of other things tend to fail. Yeah, that makes sense. Because they're spending energy on how do we figure this out instead of spending their their focus, their resources, their energy. I'm just using that kind of in general terms right. on being more of what they are. Yeah. So it's not just can we get all the technical stuff? Can we get you know the person at the right point in their career doing the right thing with this and this and that? But can we align the how they go about doing their business? Because when we do that, I think we, again, lower the risk mm-hmm. of a failure and really stack the deck in favor of success because people do best when they're being themselves and not trying to be something else. Yeah, because it sounds like it, 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 you just fall into the fatigue. Oh, you get burnt out quick. Yeah. You know, even if you're just being yourself, you need to recharge periodically. Well, I'm an introvert, so I hear that. I am having a real hard time believing that, but you know, hey. (laughs) Well, it's all about how you power up. Right. You know, whenever you're, I I have to be by myself and, you know, I might be doing a puzzle or something on my iPad Mm -hmm. or something, but I've got to have that a little bit alone time. Well, I hear you too. You know, a lot of times when you go home, you've got your kids, you've got, you know, your significant other or, or whatever going on at the house. Yeah. Not everybody can just immediately jump in and just engage in everything. A lot of people, give me 10 minutes, give me yeah. 15 minutes just to kind of let the day go. Right. And it's harder to do now than it was a decade or two ago, you know, because we're all so connected. Yes, very much so. You know, but again, what I found over the years, if you can get that core aligned properly, you really stack the deck in your favor because who wants to spend energy being something you're not? Yeah. Because then it, then when you do get worn down, you're going to revert to your core personality because it's easiest, it's quickest, it's right there. And that facade's going to go away. And then the other person's going to look at you and go, what on earth did I hire? Yeah. Or marry or go out with or wake up next to or whatever it might be. Right. So, you know, big piece of advice I think that, that I learned I'd share with anyone is, is, you know, be true to what your core is and spend that energy being more of that instead of trying to be something that Maybe it doesn't make sense. You're beating me to questions. <laughs> <laughs> or you've just listened to the show. So, so yeah. <laughs> so I've heard so many positive things. And what are some real challenges? I mean, I mean, there have had to have been some like learning curve or, or what have you going through your transition from, you know, being a CPA over to recruiting. It's very different in many respects. There are some commonalities. You know, there's a a need to be organized, which I am to a point. So if you went and looked at my desk, you'd look at it and say, wow, this is really colorful. There's post-it notes everywhere. You know, there's yellow, there's green, there's blue, there's red. (laughs) Electronically, though, I'm very organized, very set. And it's just the way I think you got to go with how your brain works in a way and kind of figure that out. Transitioning to understand that... If you're on my side of the desk as a recruiter, depending on what you're doing to varying degrees, it's a sales role. Yeah. 
That not always. Sense. Sometimes it's very consultative on a, on a retained search, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's just, you know, fire and forget, so to speak, on the very far and extreme of placing temporaries in various levels in between. But one of the big things that I had to learn is that I'm not there really to sell people per se. I'm there to help people really discover what the right answer is for them. Gotcha. You know, we spend a lot of our time when we talk to a candidate, for example, uh, one of the questions I always ask them is, so, you know, Mr. Miss Candidate, help me understand. Tell me what you see as being the next right step for you. Right. Right. And let them tell you. Let them kind of dig into it. Same thing on the, on the client side. Client needs a VP of finance, ideally someone who's going to be involved in, in, and become a successor maybe to the CFO down the road or to the, to the treasury officer or whomever. Well, you know, Mr. CFO, Ms. CFO, help me understand you know, what qualities do you want to see in this person that's going to make them successful? Tell me what the base responsibilities are, but then tell me what makes this a plus. What's this person going to bring to the table that makes it a plus? How do you see who's been successful? If you came up this way, how did you do it? You know, because we really want to understand what makes sense for everybody. And what you find out is most people have the answer. They just haven't kind of collated or coalesced it in their brain and articulated it. So you kind of take them through this little discovery jaunt, you know, yeah. through memory lane, through exchange of ideas to arrive at the right conclusion. And um, we found when candidates and clients want to engage in that, you know, we get better results. We get, you know, our whole thing. When you make a placement, there's always a risk something will go sideways. Right? Yeah, right. Always. But if I can minimize that risk and maximize the odds of success, I usually feel pretty good about it. I guess so, right? You know, but if you try to place someone in a role that doesn't align with their core, or a company, you know, a candidate into a company doesn't align with their core or a role that doesn't align with their core or that doesn't have a, let's put it this way, kind of a story that person can buy into. And if the client looks at the candidate and says, well, they're, they're good, but I just don't have that 100% feeling of confidence, then, you know, walk away. And that's yeah. one of the hardest things to do because we get paid for transactions. We get paid for process when we do retained, but... Ultimately, it's still about the transaction not only happening, but but taking root and bearing fruit over over the course of time. You can't make that happen. You gotta you gotta step back from it, you know. And that that's a hard lesson to learn, right there, is when to when to say no and to say no in a way that doesn't nuke you from continuing the process and helping people out. Very good, very good. So, um, because you already answered the question about if you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what would it be? What would you give? What kind of advice could you give to someone that's been laid off recently mm-hmm. and may have to go through the motions of being placed? Always a difficult situation. I don't care how connected a person is or, or is not, right? We're at this strange juncture in the market. I might not have said this 10 or 15 years ago, at least not in this way. Yeah. You know, we've got the baby boomers that are in their sunset years are getting close to it. We've got the little middle of the hourglass shape of the Gen Xers, yay me, you know, sitting here in the middle. <laughs> and then we have this great big bottom of the hourglass shape moving up of, of millennials, right? Yeah. What I've found is that in the course of my career alone, I think I've made four or five significant evolutions in terms of what I was doing. You know, I look back over the years and the course of the career and I kind of sit back and look, well, man, you should be ready to make that change anytime, that evolution, that step. You may not always step into 
what you had thought was the ideal next role. But why limit yourself? Why not spend some time and effort in discovering more about yourself and what would make sense? Because you're always going to have something of a vocation. You know, say you're you're a technical engineer at some point, maybe a, a quality engineer in midstream infrastructure or, mm-hmm. or you know power units, gen units, or whatever that may be out in the field or sits behind a meter or wherever it is. And there's always opportunities in a space like that. They may not be always the best opportunities for you, but they're always there. But man, where else could you apply that? Maybe if you've been a technical person, have you thought about going to a technical sales job? Have you thought about, I would say podcasting, but you might look at me funny. Well, I mean, I got laid off (laughs) and this is where I ended up. So I could, you know, everything happens for a reason. I, I sincerely believe that, but yeah, it, it happens. But you got to play to your strengths. Right. And to play to your strengths, you have to gain some understanding of yourself. And look, some people, I used to uh, place a lot of people in the revenue accounting space back 2010, 2012-ish. You know, things were going great guns. Barn doors are blowing off. And some people are content to be revenue accountants their entire career, and that's okay. But realize there's risk involved with that, too. You hit a downturn. There's not as much need for that role for whatever reason. Maybe your company goes belly up or gets acquired. Then what? Yeah. Can you still find work? Yeah, I think you can still find it. Is it going to be necessarily at the comp you had before or in the context you had before? Maybe not. Maybe not. But 20 or 30 years ago, I don't, well, I don't know if I'm backing up that far, probably close to it. When I graduated college, a billion-dollar company was massive. Yeah. You know, you look at it, man, I could work at that company forever. They're so big. Nowadays, you're like, billion dollars? Eh, eh, Okay. Cool. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> so, and let me tell you, it's still a significant company. Right. There's no doubt. But companies and career paths and career steps have to be more actively managed. And so when a person's laid off, you kind of got to reset the mentality a little bit. How can I actively manage my career? Not just my career in a context of am I moving upward and onward, but how am I doing for cash flow? Yeah. You know, it's funny that you would ask that from my perspective, because part of my journey where I've been in the recruiting business, statistically, best recruiters in the world don't place, but don't even place uh, 90, I'd say don't even place 10% of all the people they talk to. Wow. In fact, I would say for most people, it's even less. It's probably less than 5%. And when you really start looking at the numbers, it's kind of frightening because what happens to that other 90, 95% of the talent pool that you touch? So a big part of my journey has been the thought that struck in my mind is how can you add value to these people? How can you add value to someone who's just been laid off or maybe someone who's not been laid off, but they're smart enough to be looking and get ahead of the game? Because from a recruiting perspective, the highest and best value you typically have is, did I place this person into a role? Yeah. And then everybody thinks, oh, wow, that guy's great. He placed me. Look, some of the things I like to hang my hat on are a guy I didn't place, someone else placed, but I gave him critical intelligence on the people he was interviewing with that the other recruiter couldn't offer him and he got the job. What do you mean by critical? Well, it could be personality information. It could be information about, hey, here's the scuttlebutt on the market. You know, here's what people are saying about this company. It could be something as, hey, did you see this announcement that just came off the PR wire that they're getting acquired or they're having going concern issues? It could be a number of things, but you know, it's really about setting that person on the path that gets them the information or positions them to take the best advantage of the opportunity they can. You know, that led me to last summer when I launched Evolving Talent Group early last year. You know, we're primarily focused on a retained search, kind of director level and up into mm-hmm. the C-suite. 
meet some amazing people, amazing executives, people with accomplishments that if you were to, you know, put it all on paper, you're like, holy smokes, I would hire this person. You know, why won't someone else? Well, I may not have the opportunity for them. So my thought process, again, kind of coalesced around, well, how do I add value? How do I help this person in some way? It may or may not come back to me right away. Most of my industry, the recruiting industry, if I don't see immediate value, if I can't monetize this relationship today, I don't need it. Move on. Yeah. You know, very transaction driven. So a little bit different approach. One of the things we started doing is we partnered with an investment banking group mm-hmm. where if we have an exceptional executive who maybe doesn't want to be the next VP of whatever it is at whatever big Acme company is out there, maybe, you know, they've looked out across the market and man, I just want to, I want to have my own rodeo once. I want to have my own thing once, right? right. You know, we've got uh, now the ability to help them by tying them into this investment banker team, get in front of some of the most active PE firms in the country and find opportunities to actually go do a management buyout, go do a takeover of one platform and then layer in a couple of others and build a larger enterprise and actually make their own way. You could say making your own job, but that sounds kind of boring to me. It's really making your own path, carving your own trail. Yeah, I like that better too. Yeah, I mean... That other one sounds lame, so... (laughs) (laughs) But what's really fantastic about it is, is there is a way now that our team adds value to people we may not place. Because when you're doing a retained search, look, you just don't randomly bring people to a client. That client is paying you for something very specific, very process-driven, really driven by aligning your judgment with theirs and bringing the right people and the right market intelligence. And if they're looking for chief technology officer... I can't really go help this chief commercial officer, right, with that role. But if I'm talking to this chief commercial officer, I can plant the seed in that person's head that, hey, maybe there's another opportunity here that you and your people that you've worked with before as a core leadership team might be able to investigate and make something out of. And I'll tell you, right now, without being too verbose about it, I mean, I've got – We've got two deals in the pipeline right now. One of them is close to a $150 million set of acquisitions coming from a relationship like that with people. And at least two of the guys on the team, you know, either left or were pushed out of the companies they were at. And rather than going out and just getting their next job, they're now working at creating something bigger, better, something that truly is that they have a chance to leave their footprint on and, and that they can define versus being defined for them. It almost feels like you're kind of a, hey, take a moment, take a breath, figure out what you want Mm -hmm. in your life, and let's move forward with that. Exactly. And it may may or may not align with what we have cooking at the moment. Right. But another way we can add value is, okay, here's a way to approach that. You know, you want to search over in this area instead of that area. I got it. Let me kind of help you lay out some guideposts, you know, to keep you out of the ditch and keep you on the, the, the path to it. We may not look, we're not going to place 90, 95% of the people we talk to. And, yeah. and that's just reality. But how can we help? Yeah. Now, we got to make money along the way, obviously, like any company. Well, but, right. Yeah. But at the same time, I get a lot of, I get a lot of satisfaction. It might even say fulfillment in a sense to see that a conversation or three or four like that over time helps someone shape their own path, you know, whether it's a candidate or a client. Because sometimes you can help clients think and look at things differently than they did before, which gives them an advantage. Yeah. And uh, when you see them take off with that, that's pretty exciting. 
you know, even if, even if it's not something that you're not monetizing, right? right. But it's something that you look at and you go, hmm, okay, they, they listened, we resonated, something great's happening here and more power to them, you know? And I can totally relate to that because I mean, that's the whole point of the show is for, for people to hear other people's stories and be moved and learn something. And, and I find that mm -hmm. to be quite incredible. I hate to say be part of a bigger story, but let's say it allows us a chance, at least vicariously, to be part of a compelling story and to take what provides that, that compelling aspect of it and find something that's valuable to us, Yeah, you know, which mm -hmm. is kind of cool. Yeah. And I think a lot of people miss because we're focused in my business. Again, it's transaction here, transaction there. Got to have them. But how you go about it? goes back to how it aligns to that core personality. And for me, going from transaction to transaction is not enough. Yeah. It's not enough. How can we add value? Because everything everything we do, our conversation here, okay, we're face-to-face -face across the table, right? Right. And, and we're smiling. We're talking about this stuff and, and kind of thinking it through. And your mind starts working, right? When mm -hmm. you look at any relationship, business, personal, whatever it is, it's really built on an exchange of perceived value. Interesting. I okay. like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we be something, think about it for a second. You go on a date. Okay. Now I'm dialing the way back machine because I've been married 20 years. Um, <laughs> but, but you go on a date and you go out and you're talking to this girl or you're talking to this guy, depending on which side of the table you're sitting on. And she goes, wow, you know, he's funny, you know, at the end of the night and mm -hmm. goes her own way. And he goes, wow, she uh, actually paid attention to me. Wow. That's amazing. Cause that's how a guy sees it. You don't like, wow, she really is interested in what I have to say. But each person gave the other person something that other person perceived as valuable. And when you do that, what happens? You want to have another exchange. Change, yeah. Now, what if, what if the guy was a complete dolt? I mean, the guy was a tool, you know, and just, uh, just was not what the lady was expecting, right? You think mm -hmm. there's going to be a second date? Probably not. Probably not because <laughs> there's no value, perceived value, because what I see is important you may or may not see as important. That's very true. So there's this, I think, a psychology behind it to where when we understand that, we know, and this is why, why facades are such a big deal in that earlier illusion or earlier part of the conversation about the core personality. We want to please people. We want to make them happy. You know, I want you to walk away from this podcast going, wow, man, that guy's a great interview. Yeah. I'll have him back. And I want people who are listening to it to go, oh, I want to hear this guy again. So we all put up the, this facade or we're tempted to at a minimum. Yeah. How can I show them what they want to see? Hmm. Okay. When that facade wears down, that energy wears down, what are you left with? That core personality. Yep. And if that core personality doesn't fit in a relationship, so long, goodbye. See, I don't want to be you. And I'm going <laughs> to run away fast. Um, but it applies in every relationship. And when you have developed that mutual exchange and you've given value both ways, guess what happens now? You develop trust. You develop confidence. This becomes your go-to person. Mm -hmm. You know, in a relationship, maybe it leads to long-term stuff or a marriage or whatever it might be. But in business, it means that a client can pick up the phone and call and know that I may or may not give them the exact right advice. I may or may not know exactly what they want to hear, but they know I'm always going to come with something valuable. And vice versa, you know, when dealing with a candidate or, or any, however that situation may work out. And I think that's that's critical. And that aligns more with my core, mm -hmm. I think, than just being, hey, let's do a deal. Yeah, I love chasing a deal. But at the same time, I love to know that somehow, some way, this helped that other person be more tomorrow than they were today. 
That's awesome. That's really awesome. And and like I said, I I understand because that's the entire reason I I do this. <laughs> so so because you already gave your piece of advice, my next question will be: What book influenced you the most? Okay, that's a little more nuanced question. I'll tell you a story. Okay. Background: I'll go back to Texas A and M summer school, advanced accounting. I forget, is that 401 or 404, something like that. The professor is a gentleman named Dr. Larry Wood. And I remember Larry very well. And I'll give a little bit of backstory because it's kind of heartbreaking in a way. He actually passed away that November, had a massive heart attack. Wow. He was a partner in a CPA firm. But he would make us, when we came into this class, you know, you're expecting this, oh, man, here we go, accounting class. Okay, get my accounting mindset on, you know, or it's <laughs> going to be numbers. We barely looked at numbers. Really? No. He told us to go get the business section of the journal, Wall Street Journal, Mm -hmm. and pick an article and write something about it, a little synopsis or whatever, every morning before class. Okay. You know, and you're doing this three, four times a week or whatever, and you're like, well, why am I doing this? Well, and then then we get into accounting theory, how you treat this and so on and so forth. But I'm talking to him in his office one day, and, you know, I'm always stuck with the Wall Street Journal, Dr. Wood, can I use this or that, you know? And he said, yeah, you can do this and this. And he pauses and he says, you see that book over there? And he points out this book. It was by Frederick Hayek. It's called The Road to Serfdom. He said, if you read the first seven or eight chapters, it'll be the equivalent of a master's degree in economics. I'm like, right. <laughs> I went and got the book. And he wasn't kidding. I mean, you could only read small sections of the book of Hayek's book. And you had to digest, you had to process, but it was brilliant. It changed the way I looked at a lot of stuff around business, around politics for that matter, around society in general. Hayek was brilliant man. But that book really impacted how I looked at things going forward. And in fact, it impacted what we just covered on about adding value, hmm. you know, because you can't just take, you got to, you got to input into the system. You got to help grow the pie larger. You got to help people see that next step because there's value in that. So huge influence on me. And that's one of the reasons that and what happened afterwards when he passed away, that's one of the reasons I I not only remember Dr. Larry Wood, I remember him very fondly. Probably just from those interactions, probably one of the most favorite professors I've ever had. Fantastic man. But, you know, going forward, I mean, gosh, there's so many I've read. I make it a point to try and read at least once a quarter. A whole book, not just read once a quarter. But I was going to say, that's <laughs> how do you make it through the day? Oh, well, I really take my time. <laughs> I'd highly recommend if people haven't read it, there are there's a group of four organizational psychologists, and their names are escaping me, but the book titles are easy. They wrote three books that I'm aware of. One's called Crucial Conversations. One's called Crucial Accountability, both excellent reads. Then they wrote another book called The Influencers. Book terrified me. Why is that? It really centers around how small groups of people or individuals are able to harness the power of influence over larger groups. I mean, it was for me. Okay, I understand now. Yeah, it was terrifying <laughs> because for me, it was like, wow. I mean, so this is how this is how TV commercials work. This is how you marketing creates demand. Those rascals. <laughs> you know? It's it's all formula. I mean, you know, of course, there's other aspects to it, but fantastic read and really eye opening, especially if you're not in the marketing space, right? In terms of understanding those things, and of course, they cover a lot more. They cover, you know, dealing with social issues in there too. But strongly recommend they, those four authors do a fantastic job. And like I said, it's 
little bit on the other side of mildly terrifying for me. <laughs> I'm interested now, so and I'll make sure that the we put links to those books in the show notes so everybody can get into them too. What would you say is your most used business tool? Let me preface it by saying most used business tool in, t- in terms of technology, you know, in my space, obviously LinkedIn, hands down, constantly networking, constantly reaching out to people. It's fantastic if you've misplaced a cell phone number, an email address, because you can reach out to people directly you're connected with, and right. even, even indirectly, frankly. It collates and curates information in a way that you just can't replicate in a database. Mm-hmm. You know, because that information can always be pruned. It can always be evergreen if, if that other person upkeeps it. But I'd say the other thing, too, and not to sound too archaic, it's really the phone. Yeah. You know, there's a lot to be said for face-to-face meetings. I, I do as many as I can get on my calendar. But phone time, to me, is one of the most valuable assets, resources we have on my side of the business. I don't care how much you type. I don't care how much you... Is that even a thing anymore, how much you type? I don't know. But, I mean... Because I've, I've gone through the process of trying to be placed before, and they were like, oh, you're going to have to do all these tests. And how do you do, how do you, how are you with the Microsoft Office apps? And how fast do you type? Yeah, I don't deal much in the tests when it comes to that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, because you said you, I've directors deal, and up, yeah, C-suite, and, and so and that makes de- sense. We may actually deal in case studies, you know, that you have to work out in Excel and develop macros and all this other stuff for. But the fact is, though, phone time and actually talking to another human being, actually having that interaction, carries a tremendous amount of value with it, more so than, say, emailing back and forth, because you lose something. I'm very glad we're not having this conversation on the phone, because we can make eye contact, we can have nonverbal cues. Yeah. If I'm garbling something, you can give me the frowny face, <laughs> you know? Well, and, and so that's, that's my friends give me a lot of crap because I couldn't lie to save my life because you know exactly how I feel based off of my facial, my facial expression. But you so. probably could on an email. Yeah, exactly. Because you can think about it and, and that has its place in terms of, let me couch this the right way because I'm not saying they rejected you candidate, but yeah, they rejected you. I yeah. might, you know, you'll say it differently in an email, you know, on the phone, at least, I can hear this other person's voice. You I can, can hear the emotion. You can, yeah. it, it's more personable. All business is personal. Mm-hmm. And we can go back and watch reruns of The Godfather and hear, oh, it's not business. And it's not personal. It's just business. All business involves people. Guess what? It's personal. Yeah. Even if you do it arm's length over the, the internet, at the end of the day, there's still a person on either end transacting something. Mm-hmm. You know, so... If I had to pick between the two two tools to lay aside, I'd probably lay aside LinkedIn. I'd rather have that human interaction and go places and do things that an algorithm Mm -hmm. and an instant message can't do. Yeah. I love both of them. I'm addicted to both of them. But (laughs) that's where I really, I think, place the most value. And and I'd add to that, that book list one other book. I wouldn't say it's a profound influencer per se, but rather a profound affirmer. Mm Mm-hmm called Top Grading by a guy named Bradford Smart. And he worked with Jack Welch in the 80s and 90s at GE in terms of upgrading and what they called top grading their talent levels, especially the executive. I like that. Yeah. It is a big read. Paperback, it's probably, what is that, two inches thick? Yeah, that looks about right. Yeah. It's a big one. But when I was originally trained in retained search, it was by a gentleman who'd been around a long time, knew his stuff, a guy named Mike Charbonnier. Mike was very, very smart. Would tell you he wasn't, but I think that was just his facade. But everything I read in that book about how to conduct an interview, how to dig into things, Mike had taught me years prior. And I was reading it just going, wow, man, 
what an affirmation and certain sense of, hey, this is, this is the right way to do it. But it's an eye-opening read, especially if you are unfamiliar or not a seasoned interviewer, be it a candidate or a client. I highly recommend that. Not like an interview like this, but like an interview for a job. Yes. Which I'm just clarifying. Yes. I mean, there's, there is, there's no stone unturned in the book in terms of how to approach it. And you can pick and choose stuff that you want to add to your repertoire or your toolkit or not. Mm-hmm. But it's great to know. Yeah. Oh, Sorry. Tangent. Side no, 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 no. This, this is, you know, I, I want people to hear this and, and, and get some insight from, from your perspective. So who's your most respected competitor? Because, I mean, there's a lot of recruiters out there. Yeah. Let me preface it with it depends. I mean, if you're talking retained, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, you could name like the Hydrogen Struggles and Spencers and whoever else is out there. And that's fine. They're all quality firms. Right. They're all deep. They have great staff. They have defined processes. I tend to look at some of the smaller competitors. There's a firm locally, Prangin Associates. They're very good. There are several others around. You know, I think if you're going to engage a retained search firm, you're probably best off talking to at least a couple. Yeah. And you're probably best off not buying on price. Okay. Buy on who you have confidence in can execute the vision in front of them gotcha. you know, execute on that vision. Now, if you're talking contingent and you're talking, you know, where you're not paid till there's a button to cherry effectively. Yeah. I mean, there's a plethora of companies out there. I would counsel something very similar, but I also suggest to people that again, look for people who can prove themselves effective over time and realize that most recruiters in the contingent space even though many try to be all things to all people, they cannot be. Some will be very good with a particular area in engineering. Mm-hmm. Others will be very good in finance and accounting. Others will be very good in IT. But that doesn't mean that they're good in these other areas, right? Gotcha. Yeah. So it's usually prudent to have you know, a couple people you can depend on. But having said that, I would have a primary to go to in that space. What a lot of people don't understand, I'm going to give you an industry secret here. And I don't know, there might be a price on my head after this one. But when you deal in retained search, technically, from a professional ethical standpoint, if I generate a slate of candidates for you to look at for your CEO position, mm-hmm. okay, those are your intellectual property. I should not take those candidates, regardless of role, and market them to other companies during your search or while we have any active engagement or while during the duration of a guarantee period. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I'm not creating unnecessary competition for you. When you engage with a contingent firm, say you're going to hire your next SEC reporting manager or your next sales engineer, right? Mm -hmm. And you're going to go pay 25% of their first year's salary to this firm to bring them, and they're going to give you a 90-day guarantee. Oh, joy. I don't have to pay them unless a butt's in a chair, and I can be having my internal people looking and gathering referrals and so on. Suppose that contingent company brings you just a stellar candidate and you look at them, you're like, wow, this person's always hit their numbers plus. You know, they're well-respected. Here's great references, so on and so forth. And you go to interview them and you find out around second, third interview that they're interviewing at four of their companies. What you may not recognize is the recruiter that brought them to you. Since there's no fiduciary duty involved, there's no engagement involved or compensation involved. They're taking that really stellar candidate they sourced for you, and they're marketing them to all your competitors. Wow. So you, Miss Client, you just created another layer or layers of competition for a top-flight talent that did not exist 
before you called that firm. Huh. So I'm not saying don't call that firm. I'm saying you better have confidence in who you're working with, understand the process. It may be that you want to do something that's more on a retained basis of some sort. Maybe you want to pay you know, 20 or 25% of the fee up front and then nothing else until the person's place, but have worked in the contract that you don't market those candidates anywhere else. On a mission-critical role, suddenly having your top candidate be the top candidate for four competitors is an unpleasant place to be in. <laughs> but that happens a lot of times without hiring managers really understanding how contingent works. And it's one of the reasons why I, I gravitated over time into retained is because we're very client-specific, very focused on delivery, what they're looking for, and we're working for them, not going out here, oh, man, what, who can open the door for my next transaction? You know, we're focused on completing this search first. So different mentalities. So I tell you, which firm you go with, I think largely needs to be dictated by what your needs are as a consumer, as a client. Gotcha. Wow, that's a lot to take in. But I... I kind of got it. I kind of got it. Dirty little secret of the contingent business. (laughs) (laughs) What's your most important lesson learned? When you say most important, you know, the first thing that pops in my mind is which one? If you have multiple, that's, uh, it happens. Well, they're all, you know, critical. Yeah. In the sense of, I remember Mike Chabagny telling me when he was first kind of took me into his training, you know, when he delivered it, you know, he would have me pitch a candidate to him or do a kind of a role play interview situation. And, And Mike was a former helicopter pilot in the Marine Corps mm. and real nice guy. And then when his door shut, oh my goodness, it's like we're transported back to, to boot or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he got tough and he would, you know, he would tell me one of the things, don't make stuff up. Don't lie. Don't this, don't do that. And he said, and finally don't sell to me. And I'm like, well, wait a second. I thought we were in a sales role right. in the recruitment business. And he says, we are, but we're not. We're not out there selling a product. We're not out there pushing a decision right or left necessarily. I mean, there are times when you do have to give someone a nudge, maybe even a real hard shove, just depending on the situation. (laughs) But generally speaking, it's really about that consultative approach, about opening a door and encouraging someone to walk through it. It's the difference between going fishing and catching a fish with a hook, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, the fish, once they're hooked, they don't have a choice to bite down or let go. Right. But you throw, you know, say you're bass fishing, you throw that worm out there, that that plastic worm, and there's no hook in it. You know, you want the fish to hang on to that rascal all the way to the boat Mm -hmm. because they want to be there. So that process of discovery, being consultative about getting someone to the right conclusion, it's sales, but it's not salesy. I can see, yeah. And, and that's kind of the conclusion I, I got in. I arrived at eventually. I am a little slow sometimes on the uptake, but it's really about not can we push someone to the right decision, but can we get them to the right decision? Yeah. And even though that seems subtle on the outside, on the inside, it's everything. Yeah. It makes sense, complete sense to me. Yeah. And so, and that's not, hey, don't do this, don't do that. It's not necessarily an integrity thing, but it is an integrity thing. Not from how do I put this properly? You may want to edit some of this out. It's not an integrity thing from is it honest or not per se, but is it consistent or not per se? Do I take the same process for every candidate and treat them the same through the process? Because that's the only way to get to a result of really having comparable candidates, for example. Okay. If I deal with a client and I'm ham handed with one and got kid gloves on with another, 
you know, how can I actually measure and figure out my results? So there's got to be consistency in your process and performance throughout in order to get where you're going to go. And, and that's how I look at integrity. Integrity is that consistency inside and out, you know, in the process and how you go through it. And if I'm going to tell you, well, this guy's personality is horrible, but this guy's personality is great. And you say, well, wow, what are the differences? And I go, well, I just, I just didn't like that guy. And I like this guy a lot. There's not a lot of, that's very subjective, right? Yeah. Why does this person make sense? Okay, well, they check boxes ABC. More importantly, when we're talking about what goes into plus territory in this role, here's what they have done and how it would apply going forward. So it's more than just checking the boxes. It's the additional horsepower beyond this, what this person can bring to the table, right? Same thing with the next candidate. This person doesn't bring as much of X, but they've got Y plus. How might this fit? And, you know, and again, have that kind of discovery consultative process conversation to help the client, help the candidates get to the right conclusion with a minimum risk of having a fall off or something going sideways, maximize their opportunity for success. Excellent. Do you have another one? Nothing replicates hard work. That's true. You, you know, we can, you know, we can sit here and my side of the table and pretend that one conversation a day is all it takes, but it takes 10 or 20 or a hundred in that respect. What we do is still very sales related, Yeah. but at the same time, it's not salesy. It's just part of the game. You know, if you're going to go sell, you know, why is Amazon successful? And I start off as an online bookstore, right? Well, do they sell a book a day? No, they sell gazillions of books a day. Yep. Well, how do they do that? They found out a way to have gazillions of contacts a day through the web to move these things forward to their consumers. And every business kind of has that same model to one degree or another. You know, do we have enough contacts, enough connections out there to find that 2% or 5% or whatever the number is of people who are ready to buy what we do? And that takes hard work. You know, you can't uncover that. By snapping your fingers, although if I ever found a formula that did that, I would you, be all and over it. And let me know, please. <laughs> I'd be all over it, you know. But, you know, with that hard work, you have to have faith that if you're, if you're doing the right thing enough times, the right timing will come up. Yeah, I'm a firm believer in that. Everything happens for a reason, and timing is everything, really. It's not everything. It's the next closest thing to everything. Okay. Yeah, very true. Thank you for correcting me. <laughs> <laughs> I stand corrected. So what's your favorite podcast? Well, this is my first podcast. Really? That I've done. Oh, that's cool. That's awesome. Yay. Yeah, no, thank you. I hope many more to you. That'd be exciting. Um, so <laughs> I would have to, uh, whenever I do hear the final product, you know, I'd have to check the box on this one being my favorite. <laughs> until, we have, <laughs> until we have a chance to do a second or a third, you know, and I have something to compare it against. Um <laughs> You know, I, I was raised to, to read mm-hmm. a lot. You know, we were talking earlier I'm, about kids and whatnot. My oldest daughter, she was sitting down reading chapter books before she was two. I mean, she was ridiculous. She can't do math to save her life. I love her to death. But you cannot. She is a blazingly fast reader, was from a very young age, and comprehends stuff. Will read something even when she was three and four years old and then sit down and have a conversation like it was no big deal about whatever she just read. I mean, and we're talking some big books. I mean, she read that first Harry Potter book and would sit there and just blah, 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 blah. And you're like, my eyes are glaving over, sweetie. I mean, I'm just kidding. You know, what? I can't really <laughs> blame her on any of that because that's my favorite book series. So, well, but I, I didn't read it at two. So, well, she was reading it three and four, that Goodness. stuff. But I mean, she, she was, it was really remarkable. 
but I was raised that way. I was raised with a book in your hand. Now, my books were easier, yeah. you know, Western novels and stuff like that. <laughs> but I kind of carried that forward. So I tend to read more than listening. I got to say, I'm going to, obviously, I got to do some catch up and do some listening. Oh, yeah, yeah. We got six shows, so take it all in. <laughs> <laughs> so because I want our listeners to be well-dressed and most importantly safe, be sure to go to www.bulwark.com forward slash podcast to win an FR shirt and base layer no purchase necessary to win see official rules for details thank you so much for joining me today john if people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about your company how can they go about doing that number one thank you Paige. appreciate it very much <laughs> best resource would be to check us out on our website at www.evolvingtalentgroup.com awesome www i like that i might have to steal that <laughs> www gets a little long-winded I, I just i got it i got the hang of it so <laughs> <laughs> um and of course you're on linkedin because that's your favorite absolutely you can find me if you drop john light into uh, your search there yeah uh, or evolving talent group odds are you'll pull me up awesome and, I, and i'll accept whatever invitations come my way so feel free to reach out <laughs> excellent we got events on deck sp gulf coast region upcoming golf tournament uh monday april 8th at the kingwood country club here in Kingwood, Texas. So that concludes this episode. Just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Bulwark's Oil and Gas Industry Leaders podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.